Hi, I'm Mark Haywood, and this is Behind the Spine, a podcast which finds learning opportunities for writers in the most unlikely of places. My entire life I've been surrounded by death in one way or the other. Stories are one of the few vehicles that allow us to travel through time. A story grants a legacy to its author, whose words can continue to be heard even after they die. But it's not often that we think about the story the dead themselves tell. Once our brains have given up and our vocal cords have desiccated, our bodies remain to share the stories of our lives. Locked up inside is the physical evidence of our time on this planet, even when all that's left are bones. And sometimes the story of a life is left unfinished, cut short without explanation, full of missing pieces and devoid of an ending. And that's where forensics comes in. Experts in the field are able to recreate the picture of a person with nothing to go on but their remains. For forensic anthropologists, they're able to do the impossible by identifying people who've been left beyond recognition, whether they've decomposed, burnt or been mutilated. The work isn't glamorous, but it's crucial in solving criminal cases. And with the popularity of shows like the BBC's Forensics, The Real CSI, it's a gruesome area of fascination for many of us. Our guest today is forensic anthropologist, Professor Dame Sue Black. Chapter 1, Kosovo. Many of us would find it very difficult to detach from death. Its omnipresence is terrifying, especially when we're brought face to face with it. So to witness war-scale death for most of us would be crippling. And that's precisely why Sue has to have a different attitude to death, to show an unrivaled metal in the face of it. This became particularly important when she was sent to examine the bodies of those who had died amid the war crimes of the 1998 war in Kosovo. I received a phone call uh, one Wednesday afternoon in 1999 from Peter Vanessas, who is a forensic pathologist. And Peter, in his inimitable style, said to me, what are you doing on Saturday, Suze? And I thought, oh, how nice. You know, he's asking me, shall we go for dinner? And when I said nothing, he went, great, because I've got tickets for you. You're getting on a plane. We need you in Kosovo. And like many people at that time, I knew things were going on in Kosovo. I hadn't really paid that much attention to it because until it really impacts on you personally, often what you have is that sort of superficial surface bumping along of watching the news. And so suddenly you, you become like a sponge that wants to soak up every single piece that anybody is writing anywhere, good or bad, about Kosovo. So I spent the next two days whilst packing, trying to learn as much as I could. But in all honesty, there was very little that could prepare me for what it was that I was going in to do. Most of the work that I'd done before was very much single cases of bodies being found that required identification. And a mass fatality situation and a war crime situation was really quite new to me. So there, there was a huge amount of anxiety and trepidation, but enormous right off the scale levels of adrenaline that you know just made it something that you knew you would never forget and every single moment that you spent there would be just burned in your memory and that's true because I think Kosovo for me was an incredible turning point not just professionally and for my discipline but personally as well it's a real time at which I felt I could grow into something that perhaps I'd been designed to do and to create a legacy from that point forward that, that would make it a better place. So 
it was totally unexpected. I arrived in Skopje airport, um, not speaking a word of the local language. And when you come out of the airport, all you have is a sea of taxi drivers. And one man was standing there with a piece of paper that said black. And I thought, Do you know, it must be me. And, and I got in the car with this complete and utter stranger. And, you know, against every kind of rule that you've ever been told, and thought, you know, this is just the start of the adventure. Heaven knows where it's going to go. I was saved from the taxi driver eventually by people from the Foreign and Commonwealth Office. And then the following day, we started the journey from Skopje into Kosovo. And as you approach the border, you, you really started to feel the tension developing that, that this was not... This was not ordinary. Something really exceptional had happened because you had all of the trucks, whether they be military trucks or they be United Nations or food supplies, all stacked up at the borders, everybody having their paperwork checked. But because you're in the UNHCR vehicle, you go straight up to the front and your papers are just looked at very cursory and you move on. And you realize that, you know, that there's something special in that that you're there to do a job that has been recognized as being important. And I can remember a really important moment for me where we were hurtling along what are the worst or were the worst roads I think I'd ever been on in my life. And we turned the corner, went under a bridge and nearly ran into the back of a tank. And I had never, I mean, this is just how naive I was. I'd never realized how big tanks were, which is a stupid thing to say. But there was that horrible moment of thinking, oh, you know, what is it? Oh, it's a tank. And I noticed that it had a little Union Jack. And, you know, at that point, I had such a feeling of relief and had such a feeling, I think it was of, of belonging and pride that that has never left me. I'd never thought myself as being particularly UK, Great Britain patriotic, but the instant reaction of that heightened fear, awareness and anxiety and almost running into the back of something that was yours. You know, all those sorts of things told me a lot about myself. And we drove straight to the first um, crime scene and the first crime scene was in a very small village uh, just around Prizren and Prizren is down in the southwestern border of Kosovo. And I think it was 44 men um, had been taken off the refugee trail as they were heading down towards the Albanian border. And they'd been separated away. They'd been taken to this outhouse. And the men had been separated into two rooms. Each room in this, in this outhouse, a gunman had stood at the door and had sprayed the room with Kalashnikov fire. And their accomplices had stood at the windows. They'd thrown in straw, they'd thrown in petrol, and they'd burnt the building. So that was what we were coming to about eight or nine months later. But what was important about the indictment sites was somebody had to survive. And so there was a survivor of that scene. And that made him incredibly important because he had witness testimony. And if he was brought as a witness against Milosevic or, or any of his senior advisors, then his witness testimony, if it matched with our expert testimony, meant that actually what you had was a really strong chain of evidence. So you try to keep the two pieces of information apart. So what I'm also saying is that at this point of being terrified and heightened anxiety, you also have to kick into this mode of thinking, I could end up in an international court. 
and therefore I have to do my job. I have to be dispassionate. I have to be impartial, unbiased. My job is, can I find evidence? Can I recover that evidence? Can I analyze it? And then can I present it? So we then had 43 bodies that we required to undertake a post-mortem examination of. And these are nine months after the event, and we've had heat of 30, 38 degrees. So the bodies are all piled together, commingled, mixed in a corner, lying on top of each other, very, very badly decomposed. They'd been burnt because of the, the straw and the combustant that had gone in. The roof tiles had collapsed and so fallen on top of them, so they were partly buried and submerged. And when the refugees left, they didn't take their dogs with them. So we had roaming packs of wild dogs. And for them, this was a food source. And so they'd been coming into the outhouse and taking parts of the bodies and taking them away as food. So that, that was my first introduction to Kosovo, was in this masked scene of decomposing remains in unbearable heat, where we had our security was the German tank division. Um, so we had communication problems, but they were just brilliant. And we knew we had snipers in the hills that would have liked to take us out because they wanted to halt or at least hinder how the evidence could be collected. It's a very visceral image. I have seen films that start with a woman in a strange land getting in a taxi with someone she shouldn't. So that could have ended very differently. Yeah, I never but... ever told my mother that one, ever. <laughs> but it, in all seriousness, I've I've often been struck by the weight of responsibility that forensic professionals bear in their day-to-day job. But this is something different. What you saw that scene, um, and once you get past the visceral horror of um, the scene, the weight of responsibility to find out what happened and to try and be part of something that makes this um, preventable and makes sure that it never, ever happens again. Are you struck by that weight of responsibility when you visit a scene like that? I think you are momentarily. And and if you're a, a seasoned forensic expert, I think you lose that quite quickly because you then click into, this is my job. This is what I was trained to do. That's what I'm here for. It's also important to, to put aside what you hear on media or what is the political propaganda surrounding a situation is there because it's not our job to find somebody guilty. It's not our job to say what was done here by these people were terrible. That's not what we're there for. We're not there to have a conscience or to have an opinion of anything other than the evidence in front of you. And, and being able to try and lose that, that peripheral vision, because normally what we want to have in any scenario in life is the maximum amount of information we have in breadth and depth so that we can draw from it. In many ways, in the forensic situation, you have to do the opposite. Your window has to be very narrow and actually as shallow as your own expertise and nothing more than that. And, and that's quite, you can feel the tensions of that as you try to block out everything around you and just operate within your own skill set. Before we move on to chapter two, if this podcast has inspired you to write more or maybe even to write for the first time, then you may be interested in our sister project, The Writing Salon. Its membership is 200 people strong and features all levels of experience, from people who've never written before to people writing for our best-loved television shows. 
We publish anthologies of member-produced work and just like Behind the Spine, find learning opportunities in unlikely places. The Salon has been running for several years. Right now it's a virtual event, but we hope we can reunite in person before too long. It's an active community and if you're looking for support as a writer, it may be just the thing you need. We're on Twitter and Instagram as at The Writing Salon. There's a private Facebook group, just search for The Writing Salon group. And if social media isn't your thing, we'll put a link to the email newsletter sign-up sheet in the show notes. The Writing Salon is by writers, for writers, because writing is hard. But now, on with this week's episode. Chapter 2. Death is not the end. With its deep black shroud, hooded head, skeletal fingers and oppressive scythe, our personification of death paints a firm picture of how we collectively view it as something evil and malevolent. Yet there are cultures around the world that are able to find beauty in death, Mexico's Day of the Dead, for instance. The difference between the two schools of thought is the way in which we view death as the final chapter of a journey, or as the next chapter, as we've discovered, death is not the end, and that's especially true in Sue's line of work. Our responsibility is identification. Who was the person when they were alive? And being able to determine that often allows an investigative force to be able to then start to say, when was this person last seen? What have their family got to say? What have their friends got to say? And to piece it together. But until you have a name then it's really difficult to investigate a death. And most of us die where we expect to die. We die in our beds, in hospitals, in our cars if we drive too fast. But it's when you find a body in an unexpected situation, that's where it becomes really much more challenging. So if you imagine that you have classic things, Scottish hillside, because that's, you know, when you don't have a lot of people around, bodies can lie around for a lot longer. And so if you imagine what you have as a, a body on a hillside in Scotland, it's been there for eight months or a year, then depending on the conditions of that, we may have nothing but bone. And the more skin you have and the more soft tissue you have, the more likely you are to get to a successful identification of that person. But if you just take it down to the bones, and it's rare for us to find just bones because we're a populated set of islands and people would trip over bodies that are lying around. So it, it's rare to find them where you don't expect them. If they're just bone, then the first thing we have to do is to determine whether everything is there and is it human? Because just because you find a bit of bone, it could well have been the sheep that died the year before or the cow or the rabbit or whatever it may be. And you don't want to set off a, a forensic investigation based on the remains of, of Peter Rabbit. You just don't. Police are going to get really cross with you very quickly. So is it human or is it not? If it's a full skeleton, then, you know, it's very, very straightforward. Anybody with a, a limited amount of understanding of the human body would be able to determine that. But sometimes where you have fires or you have explosions or if the body has been separated because wild animals may have taken bits of it away, you may only have fragments. And so being able to tell from that fragment, is this human, is an extremely important first step. And if you think it is human, the next question we ask is, well, how long has it been dead? Because in, in theory and in practice, if you've been dead more than 60 or 70 years before the present date, the chances of you finding somebody responsible for that are really slim. 
And if you've been dead more than 75 years before the present date, you're technically archaeological. And I, that blows my mind that my grandmother is now archaeological. But it is, there has to be a, a time somewhere that you say, this isn't a modern death, this has been someone who's been dead for a long time. And that may not be obvious at the, at the scene. But if, you, if you're on the sand dunes in Orkney, then we know that as the sea comes in and as the winds blow across Orkney, that we have a lot of archaeological burials in that space. So we'll check with archaeologists, do they know of burial sites in that area? And that, that may be important to our understanding. So if it's human and we think it's recent, then the question will be, well, what do we have present? Is it the whole body? And if it isn't the whole body, which bits are missing? And we might have to go and search further afield for the hands or the feet, for example, because foxes in particular will go for the bit of body that they first can get to. And that's usually your hands sticking out of your sleeves. Or if you're not wearing shoes, it's your, your feet sticking out of the bottom of your, your trousers or your socks. Once we've mapped what's there, we will then lift it and we'll lift the entire skeleton. We won't try to do the analysis at the scene, but the police, of course, are always saying, well, what can you tell? You know, is it a man or is it a woman? Is it an adult? Is it a child? And you have to be very careful because the minute you say something at the crime scene, that's what's heard. So you learn very quickly to, to think inside your head and use your mouth very little until you can get into the mortuary, because then you're in a controlled environment, you have the best conditions, you have the best lighting. And we'll look at the skeleton, and the, there are four important questions about it. Is it male or female? Because if it's one or the other, then that means that we can automatically exclude 50% of the people on the missing persons database. And we'll look at how old was the person? And certainly if you're a juvenile, we can do that to sometimes within months, but certainly within a few years. But the older you become, the more difficult it is to determine the age of the individual because we all age at different rates. Some of us get old very quickly and some of us take a lot longer. And you know it when you see people who are in their 80s who look like their 60s and people in their 60s who look like they're in their 80s. And so that adult period, we're not very... We're not very specific at age, but we are telling the police it's an adult, it's a young adult. And then they'll want to know, well, how tall were they? And the honest truth is most of the population falls within a foot of each other. So we're most of us in that five foot to six foot range. If you're less than five foot or if you're more than six foot, then that's, that's useful because that puts you at the extremes of the range. And then the police will want to know what's the ethnic origin of the individual. And that's probably the most difficult. And in the UK, you know, we're looking at is the individual in police terms, white, black or from a different particular cultural group. And that that's really challenging. But you can see at the end of those four, what you've got is a broad brush that says he's a male age between 25 and 30, five foot six to five foot eight in height and white. And that gives you those four brushes to go and remove everybody else in the missing persons database and to start to narrow down on individuals that meet your criteria. But using those characteristics um, on a particular skeleton that we worked on still resulted in the potential of 1,500 names on the missing persons database that matched those four criteria. Now, the police can't go and investigate those 1,500 names, just don't have the resources. 
So we need to narrow it down. And we need to look at, is this somebody who was local? Is this somebody who's traveled? Have we got anything on CCTV? Have they had broken bones? Have we got dental information? Have they had a disease? Have they only got one leg? Whatever it may be, those kinds of personal matters of identification help us to narrow it down. And then you put the information out to the police. And sometimes you may want to do a facial reconstruction. And that reconstruction isn't about producing a beautiful replica of the face of the person. It's just about producing something that's close enough that lets somebody who's watching television go, do you know that looks like Joe? And the minute you've got that name, you can say, well, is it Joe? And you can go away and you can get DNA samples from mom and dad or from children, whoever it may be. And you can say then with certainty, yes, it is Joe, or with certainty, no, it isn't. And you'll move on to the next lead until you've eventually narrowed it down. And most of the time we will get a good result, but there are always those cases that we cannot, we can't link the person back to the name they were given at birth. Or we know that somebody's missing, but we can't find them. And we hate those because those are the incomplete circles. It's a nice um, writing trope, um, the situation that you talked about, the, the disagreement and the conflict between forensic anthropologist at the site and the investigating officer. The forensic specialist can never provide enough information to satisfy the detective. I've written several of those scenes myself. As a writer, I've been responsible for um, lots of bodies being discovered. The chances of me getting the scientific, the forensic um, aspect of the investigation wrong, I would imagine, are quite high. I have tried to inform myself by reading forensic guides for um, for crime writers, for example. But what 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 is it that you see that thinks, oh, here we go again, there's yet another mistake on television about, about my day job? What I've learned very quickly is not to watch them. Right. So I don't watch those programs and I don't read those books because um, my husband taught me very early on that I'm utterly insufferable. When it was, oh, for goodness sake, they wouldn't do that. For you know, why didn't they go and ask somebody? And and that's why um, you know I'm I'm very lucky. I have a group of crime writers who I've got a great respect for because they will phone me up or they'll email me and they'll say we're putting this bit in. Would you read it for me? Does it make sense? And I've got a lot of time for that because that tells me that those writers really respect their craft and they really respect their readers because they want to get it as right as they can. So Stuart McBride, for example, at one point was doing, um, I think it was one of his Logan McRae books. And I don't know because I've not read them, but he knows that. And he said, you know, it's about dismemberment. And I don't know how to write the scene about cutting because I don't know what it feels like to be able to saw down into human bone. And in our dissecting room at the time, what we were doing, we were doing limbs. So it was possible for him to come into the dissecting room to see what the medical students were doing, to be able to talk to them. And, you know, for them, them then to say, well, actually, we're going to section this bone. Would you like to do it? Now, he turned a really pale colour, I have to say. But he said, what an experience it was that I could write knowing what it felt like to hold the saw and guided by these wonderful students to feel what it was like to go into human bone. But of course, he would have got exactly the same experience if he had gone to the butcher shop and bought a leg of pork. But you don't know that. It's obvious to us because soft tissue is soft tissue, bone is bone. It's going to feel the same. But when you're writing it, you don't know that. 
And he needed to actually feel the weight of that in terms of it being human material rather than animal material. In terms of the, the education of the next generation, um, we hear a lot about STEM subjects at the moment. Is forensic anthropology, can you talk a little bit about its popularity or indeed perhaps lack thereof at the moment? Are you seeing more people wanting to enter this, um, this field of study? We, we saw a real, a really rapid rise um, in the early 2000s. And that, I think, was on two fronts. Part of it was about um, there were a lot of television programs around at the time, both coming in from the US and starting to, to be made in the UK, that made the forensic subject seem terribly sexy. And it's really easy to engage science in a forensic context because it's not it's not rocket science. It's not neurosurgery. It's actually relatively straightforward and most people can understand it. So I can remember, you know, we, we would have uh, seminars in the science department where people would have titles for subjects that I couldn't understand the title. I've never understood what ubiquitination is. And if I, you know, we don't have that problem in forensic science in that our subject is very understandable and it's about murder and it's about theft and it's about car accidents and things that people can relate to. So I think for public engagement, it makes our science really rather simple. But of course, with that public engagement with the science comes a caveat. One is teachers using it, of course, in schools to engage young people with science who then suddenly think, well, that's great. I want to be a forensic scientist. Now, there aren't that many jobs in the field. So the last thing you want to do is encourage too many young people into a field of study where they're not going to find employment. And universities in the early 2000s were not necessarily thinking that way. There was suddenly a glut of students wanted to study forensic things. And so universities put on lots of courses in forensic things that meant lots of bottoms went onto seats and lots of fees were paid. And I think my favourite, because uh, I went through UCAS list at one point, there was about 480 um, forensic programmes in universities across the UK. And my favourite one was forensic investigation and early Christian doctrine. And you think, how? Yeah, uh -huh. That just doesn't go together. And what it meant was we've got this, this, this module in early Christian doctrine. We'll actually get some students in if we put a bit of forensic investigation on the front of it. And let's look at you know, the Turin Shroud or something. And you think, no, you know, that, that's, just, that's just not right. And so we did definitely have a real spike of, of interest. And I think that first wave has now crashed when a lot of students realised expensive university fees I'm not going to get a job. And I think it's settled now. But what's really interesting about forensic anthropology, more so perhaps than many of the other forensic sciences, but, but not all, is that there is a significant preponderance of women. So it's a very female dominated part of the science. And I don't know why, whether it's about role models or whether it's the fact it's biology based, Forensic science in general doesn't have the same kind of leaky pipeline for women entering into science that you find in many other subjects. You're as likely to get to the top in forensic science as a woman as you are a man. And it's not something that's UK specific, it's global. So when we talk to our colleagues in North America, they're saying, yeah, you know, my, my, my classrooms are full of young women 
And these young women are the ones that are going out and becoming the forensic anthropologists who are working in the field with the police forces, with the coroners or, you know, with the medical examiners, depending where you are. Um, so that they come into the subject, but they stay with the subject. Chapter three, the next big adventure. It's clear that we, the public, have a voracious appetite for all things forensic, and we revel in our role as armchair detective. The power of television to make something as morbid as forensics feel sexy is amazing, and it stretches beyond forensics, of course. We've recently seen the sexification of chess with the success of The Queen's Gambit. I mean, who'd have thunk it? But if these things aren't inherently alluring, what does television do to make them that way? With forensics, is it our fascination with death that draws us in? Or something else. So I don't think it's death that fascinates us as such in these forensic series. I think it's about the investigation. I think we all love a mystery and we all like to figure out, can we solve it? And we like to see things unfold and the pattern that develops. You know, but when you look at the popularity of, of Morse and Lewis and all, all of the other sort of forensic but police-based, then you can see it's not just the, it's not the science as such that's that's really capturing. It's the combination of the science into the investigation and the story that unwinds and eventually it goes into a courtroom and then you have yet another drama in a courtroom. So, so it's just this most wonderfully rich tapestry. But what it does do, and what's a little bit of a concern, is that because the public watch so much of this and read so much of it, they believe that they are more forensically aware than they really are. And that shouldn't cause a problem in anybody's life until you're selected for jury duty. And there you are, you're sitting in the jury and you've got a forensic scientist in front of you and they're saying, I can't get a DNA sample from that bone. And they're thinking, well, what kind of a scientist is that? Because you can get that on CSI in 40 minutes, you know. How, what do you mean you can't get it? And we know that the questions that come back to the legal teams and to the judge are questions about the forensic science that shows they're influenced by what they see and what they hear and not the reality of the science. So that's a little bit of a problem for us. That's both fascinating and very concerning, isn't it? The capacity for you to be influenced in that way is, is huge, yes. Um, if I can ask you about, and we hope that this is something that um, that isn't on the table or an issue for many, many years, Sue, but you have spoken about your desire to bequeath your own physical manifestation for investigation and the continuing um, research into um, forensics. That, that's been a decision you, you've, you've taken a long time ago, isn't it? Oh, gosh, yes. So my entire life, I've been surrounded by death in one way or the other. And my grandmother was the most important person to me. And she was a classic West Coast Scots uh, who believed in a, a life beyond death and believed in spirits and all sorts of things. And from a very young age, she would talk to me about her best friend. And her best friend was death. And she believed that wherever she walked in her life, death walked alongside her. And if death was going to be alongside her, she may as well make her her friend because at one point or another, their paths were going to cross. And that sort of approach to death from a very early age demystified it for me completely. And I spent my, my teenage years working in a butcher shop. I spent my university years in a dissecting room. I then went into the forensic world. So I have no fear of my own death, terrified if it came to my children, 
because that shouldn't happen. I need to die before they do. But for me, death has no fear for me at all. It's, it's the next big adventure because I don't know what it feels like and I don't know what it tastes like and I don't know what it sounds like. I don't know what it looks like, but I've been surrounded by it. Now, I'm in no hurry to bring it forward, as you quite rightly said. I'd quite like to have a little bit more time. But when those paths cross between me and death, that's fine. I accept that's going to happen. It, it's the guaranteed thing, you know, death and taxes. It's going to happen. And if it's going to happen, you may as well come to terms with it. And I dissected my first body when I was 19 or 20 years of age. And he had donated his body to the anatomy department. And I thought, what an amazing thing for somebody to do when they're living to say, when I die, I'm going to give my body to this anatomy department. And the only thing I ask of those students is learn, learn and pass on that information. And I would be the biggest hypocrite on the planet if at the end of my days, I didn't donate my body for dissection. So I'd quite like it to go to my own department in Dundee because we introduced a, a new form of embalming called teal, which is a soft fix. And so I, I'd like to be tealed when I die. I want to be dissected by science students because science students literally take the body apart, muscle by muscle, you know, tissue by tissue. The medics and the dentists just don't have enough time in their curriculum. So I really want my body to be pulled apart. And then what I'd like them to do when that's done, and this is, this is the only sort of flaw in my plan, is that I'm quite happy for them to collect all the muscle and soft tissue and skin and fat and cremate that because that'll go up and smoke. There'll be nothing left. But I want them to collect the bones. And those bones are going to have to be boiled because there's so much fat inside the bones. So I'm going to get boiled to get all the fat out of the bones. And then I'd really like my bones to be restrung as a skeleton to go back into the dissecting room because, you know, the, the concept of being able to teach for the rest of my death just feels right for a teacher. And if they can't string me, then put me in a box and let the forensic anthropology students, because I've written a list of all the things so far that's gone wrong with my body, so that they could identify, yes, she did have a fracture of her left collarbone. Yes, she does have osteoarthritis in her big toes, whatever it is, so that they, they have all the information they need. And my children who've grown up in this sort of an environment think this is perfectly normal as well. And we don't realize that it isn't for many people. And for my youngest daughter, who's a lawyer, I thought, you know, she really gets it because she said to me, you know, mom, when most people's mothers die, all you can do is you can go to the graveside or you can go to where their ashes were scattered. We could actually come and visit you. And I thought, yes, you could. And it comes straight back to that first point that you made about the day of the dead, which is about celebrating the person, but not being condemned by their death. And the very thought of my daughter visiting me as a, a skeleton inside a box, I think is the most appropriate thing for both them and for me. I love the idea that death won't stop you from teaching. That's oh, remarkable. It stop me. Absolutely nothing. No, <laughs> I intend to be a misery to every student from this point forward. One final question, Sue, if I may, on the subject of teaching. Um, any challenges from a practical perspective with, with lockdown? It, it would strike me as 
needing to be a subject in which physical proximity was actually quite important. How has it been for you teaching students at this time? Um, it's been challenging for every university. And what we try to do is maintain a blended approach so that we can do safe face-to-face -face teaching, but a lot of online. And the face-to-face -face is important. Our students say to us, we want it because it's important for their own mental health as well to have that level of an interaction with a teacher. In the anatomy departments, uh, unfortunately, um, body donation stopped over much of the, the COVID period. In Scotland, it's just restarted again, which is great, but it has really impacted on, on teaching. I have to say though, when you see the amount of effort and time that staff have put into making sure that what they put online is actually better in some ways than some of the stuff that they have done um, face to face because they've had to think about it more carefully. They've had to plan it more carefully. And they say it's really much more time consuming to do a really good online session than it is to just rock up at the lecture theatre and you know give the same lecture as you gave for the last two or three years. So I take my hat off to the teachers. I think they've done the most amazing job in this difficult time. Well, on that note, I wish you the best of luck for um, not just the rest of lockdown, but the rest of the year and then beyond into the rest of the 20s. Professor Sue Black, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you very much. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. A massive thank you then to Professor Dame Sue Black for joining me on the podcast. And to recap, what have we learnt? Sue's grandmother viewed death as her best friend, forever with her. We all have demons, worries... It might be that eternal fear of putting your work out there or even putting pen to paper for the first time. But if you make friends with your demons, they can begin to become far less frightening. What's scarier, the music in Jaws or the shark? Sue has to be unbiased when she's studying the remains of a body. The same is true when you're writing a story. Remaining unbiased will allow you to explore every part of your character's personalities, to assume nothing, to draw out the dark as well as the light. Sexifying forensics through television caused a surge in university take-up during the early 2000s. If there's a job or field you feel needs more attention, try writing about it. But just be realistic so people know what to expect if they're spurred to action. Finally, we've said it before on this show, but it's worth reiterating. Sue says it's important to speak to forensic experts when writing about the subject. If you're not an expert in a matter, whatever it might be, then speak to people who are. Your story will be more accurate and your readers will thank you for it. Oh, and even if you've watched a lot of TV shows about it, that doesn't mean you're an expert. Thanks for listening. I'm Mark Haywood, and if you'd like to get in touch, we're on Twitter and Facebook as at Behind the Spine. New episodes are released weekly. Please like us and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. Goodbye for now. Stay safe and keep writing. Keep writing.